How many of us remember uh, the movie Troy? Back in 2004, had Eric Bana, Brad Pitt, okay? It was the story of the Trojan War. Uh, Brad Pitt starred as Achilles in that. And um, let me just say, Achilles as a character was, was awesome, okay? He was physically fit. He was highly trained in battle, so much so that he was basically unstoppable, okay? And he could carve his, sorry for the analogy, he could carve his way through a battlefield just like with his own style, his own grace, his own poise. And you're like, man, that's cool. And then to make it even cooler, it was like the cinematography, the way they showed that it was like even the accidental little things that he did worked out for his benefit. I remember in this one scene that um, he came up on this beach assault and he like, you know, just hammers this guy with his shield. He's like, boom, shield. He's like, eh, I don't need my shield anymore. Throws it on his back, right? And at the same second that he throws it on his back is the same second that some random archer had loosed an arrow and it was going to skewer him, but it just, bing, just harmlessly deflects away. And you're like, man, that guy's cool. It's the kind of guy you expect to like stretch. And when he does, it's like that's the moment like two mounted, you know, cavalry people are running through and he clotheslines them both. And so it's like the guy couldn't fail. The guy couldn't miss. And I was like, man, that's cool. It's like, I want to be that. It's like, I want to I be highly trained at what I do. I want to be so, so good that I can just sort of bob and weave through the obstacles of life and not really get hung up on stuff. I want to wear my instincts and my, even my accidents just always just work out for my exact benefit, right? And I think we all want that, no matter in our niche in life, whether it's a profession or whether it's a relationship or whether just, just where we are in life says, man, I wish that it's like that battlefield was made for me and for my mind and my mentality and my, my, my mentality was made for that. And I was like, man, I think we all want that, just to be perfectly fit into where we are in life. And I think King David experienced that to some extent inside in, in the history of Israel. So you had King David, um, it's like his personality, his attributes, his mindset, his skill sets as a shepherd all kind of perfectly funneled him into that role as being king of Israel, and it, and it fit. It fits so much so that he's called the man after God's own heart. Now, how does that work? Um, so today we're going to dive into the mind and heart of David. We're going to look at some psalms. We're going to look at psalms of confession, psalms of lament, psalms of praise. And we're going to see through his workings how it's the good and the bad and the ugly. They all kind of funnel together into what was in the mind and heart of David. As what kind of what merited him this title, a man after God's own heart. Specifically, we're going to look at three special things. Three like unique understandings that David had um, that I think merited him that title. So if you were to come up to me and say, Rob, I found this guy or this girl who's like just exactly like me. It's like they are after my own heart. First of all, I'd say you probably need to change your phrase because that sounds weird. Um, but if you were to, but I know, what, I know what you were getting at. You were saying, okay, I would expect this person probably talks like you, maybe uh, dresses like you, acts like you, maybe thinks like you, maybe gets the same exact drink at Starbucks as you with the same little caramel swirl, and it's someone who dresses like you or who has the same political persuasion as you, you get the idea. Um, have you ever had that before, where someone is like just like you? I've had that one time, and I did not like it. I was this nerdy high schooler. It was a, I was a 12th grade, and I went to this nerdy high school convention in, like, Washington, D.C. for future government employees or whatever. Did not work. Um, but anyway, I was in this one group, and there was this kid in my group, and he annoyed me. And the reason he annoyed me is because he was exactly like me. Even the little baby things that I thought made me me, he would do them too. Like, you know, that, there's that weird ring that you just bought randomly at an antique shop because it spoke to you. You know, he had it too. 
you know, or the way like in a crowded room at a party, like you, you put your coat, like you put, move your Coke tab a little bit sideways so you know which Coca-Cola can is yours, or Dr. Pepper can, sorry, I'm a Dr. Pepper fan. You know, the way you move your Coke tab sideways just so you know where, whose it is, he did it too. And it was so infuriating because it was like all the little things, it felt like my individuality had just been robbed by this goober. I was like, what are you doing? So if you were to say, if you were a man after God's own heart, what would that mean? I think in David's case, it meant that David loved what God loves. Now, for that, I want to look at Psalm 19. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Psalm 19, we're going to be hopping all back and forth between Psalms today. In Psalm 19, it's the one that starts off, the heavens are telling the glory of God and the firmament show his handiwork. Day by day, they pour out speech. Night by night, they reveal knowledge. It's this, this thing that, that God's words are everywhere in creation. It's unavoidable. It is in your face and you have to do gymnastics to get around that. In the middle of this psalm, David starts to gush about everything that God says and God does. Now, you have to forgive Hebrew poetry. It's not like, like our poetry. We have like rhyming schemes, and we say like roses are red, violets are blue, some poems rhyme, and some don't, okay? That's the idea, but in Hebrew, it's like, it's parallelism. So it'd be like, you are great. The greatest person in the world are you. Where it's like, you're saying the same thing, but a different way. So I'm gonna take excerpts out of Psalm 19, seven through 10, but you'll get the idea of what he's saying. The law of the Lord, it says in verse seven, is perfect. His testimony of the Lord is sure. The precepts are right. His commands are radiant. The fear of the Lord is clean. His judgments are true. They are more, here's the parallel. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. This is a guy who loved everything that God did and he said. Now, secondly, if God, I mean, if David loved what God loves, then the, kind of the converse is true, right? Then he would hate what God hates. And we normally don't like to phrase it like that because we're like, no, man, our God is love, peace, man, God's love. Um, but it's really not that awkward of a concept if you think about it. This is what David, because David wrote several of what's called imprecatory psalms. I know it's not a word that we usually use every day, imprecatory. We don't use it every year. But essentially it's this. It's David praying and calling down judgment or calamity, disaster on God's enemies. Okay? And we're like, ooh, David, we probably shouldn't talk about stuff like that. Let's be happy. Um, but no, that's not really what he's saying. Um, if we've ever gone to a particularly nasty football game, or a basketball game, or watched a UFC fight, because I know none of us have ever done that, right? Okay, we're watching MMA, and you're the person you're with, all of a sudden just becomes this transformed monster, and they're like, rip their heads off, get them, yeah! And you're like, okay, okay, shh, we can't say those things. That's, you know, people are listening. Um, that's what David's doing, okay? It's not necessarily a just unbridled hatred or contempt. This is David cheering on the God of justice and how one day everything will be put right. We see it in Revelation chapter 6. In Revelation 6, um, John sees underneath the altars, all this symbolic imagery, under the altar he sees the souls of the martyrs, people who have been killed for the testimony of Jesus. And what are they saying? How long, O Lord, how long until you avenge our blood? They were killed wrongfully for the sake of the gospel. Like, when are you going to make it right? And so if you think about it, it's not all that awkward of a concept. But at the same time, we don't like to frame it that way, right? I mean, because how awkward would that be if, you know, because of fat thumbs on our Christmas card, we put Psalm 58 instead of Psalm 85? How would that look? Hmm. It looks awkward. It looks out of place. It looks weird. You don't talk to about it that way, okay? 
So, but in all seriousness, this is not, like I said, this is not David just pouring out hatred or contempt. This is David cheering on a just God, okay? Now, I also think that what made David unique was that he experienced pain and fear in the same way that Jesus one day would. Now, I don't wanna give away too much about that because we're gonna come back to it in a little later and it's this beautiful thought. But suffice it to say that I think David, as he went through his trials, his pain, his fears, I think that the pre-incarnate son of God was looking down at David, going through those things, and he said, I would feel the same way, or I think I would say the same thing. I think he resonated with that. So like I said, just, just kind of take that and put it to the side, because we're going to come back to it in a little bit, Okay. So at this point, I want to look at three things, three unique things about David and his understanding of God that I think gave him this title, a man after God's own heart. The first thing, and I think it's the most obvious part of David's character, was his response to God's conviction, specifically of sin. Now, I want to set that up a little bit. I want us to rewind one king from David, and we're at King Saul, right? People thought he'd be a great king. Wrong. He was a terrible king. He was particularly terrible at coming clean, admitting this stuff. Um, 1 Samuel 15 is sort of like God's last straw, with King Saul. And so it kind of goes something like this, to where Saul has been ordered to go to, and go to war with the Amalekites, and on this particular battle, he's to kill all the livestock. He says, Saul, you're not gonna get rich off this battle. The glory goes to me this time. I am, I'm saying kill everything right there. You don't get any spoils. No spoils, Saul. Saul totally disobeys, okay? So in walks Samuel. And Samuel's like, Hello, Saul. And Saul's like, Samuel, what's up? I just got finished carrying out the word of the Lord. It is awesome. Hey, got the victory in the battle. This is great. And Samuel says, that's awesome. That's great. Except there's this one, like, what? I hear sheep. Like, what's the deal with that? And I hear, I hear cattle in this ear too. Like, why, why do I hear those things? And Saul's like, oh, oh, those, those sheep, those cattle, oh, okay, I see what you're saying. So, you know, when my people were going through, I thought maybe, like, it was, it'd be a waste to, like, kill all those things. So I was like, let's take the best of those, let's bring them over here, and then we'll, we'll, we'll sacrifice them, sacrifice them to your God, right? Because, you know, he likes that stuff. And so that's, that's what we'll do. That's, so we're, like, carrying out the word of the Lord, and then some. Samuel says, no. He says, because you have despised the word of the Lord, the kingdom is torn from you. And even at that point, Saul's like, okay, okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But could you at least just kind of put your arm around me and smile as we go down in front of the boys? Because, like, I don't want to look bad in front of them, and I don't want their king to look bad. Okay, could you do that for me? He was always about the appearance. He was never about the heart of the issue. Now, let's contrast that to David. David, we are looking at David in a snapshot, probably the worst snapshot of his life. This is not something you would post on Facebook, right? And so at this point in David's life, he has just committed adultery with Bathsheba, he has gotten her pregnant. He has tried to cover his tracks and failed. And then he goes and he changes her husband's military commission so that the forces are to advance. He's put on the front lines. They advance and then quickly retreat, leaving him exposed. He gets killed. And then he quickly marries Bathsheba, and David thinks he's gotten away with it. Okay? That's where we are. In walks Nathan. Nathan says, David, we've got an issue down here. He says, really, what's going on? He says, there's this rich man, this poor man. This rich man has all the livestock he could ever want, and this poor man only has this one lamb, and it's precious to him. And the rich man had guests coming over, and rather than kill one of his own livestock, he went over to the poor man, killed his lamb, and served that to his guests. And that got David hot. He was like, that man deserves to die. 
may it be paid on him four times over. That is my royal decree. Let's go get him. What's his name? Nathan says, you are that man, David. It's you. You took Bathsheba from Uriah the Hittite. You are that man. David is crushed. He's crushed. He goes back and he writes one of the most beautiful psalms of confession in the whole entire Bible. For literally 3,000 years, musicians have been trying to put that poem to, to music. It's Psalm 51. Uh, those of you classic music buffs, it's the Miserere Mei. You probably know the one from Gregorio Allegri. Uh, will you read it with me? Turn to Psalm 51. We're going to read these words. It says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only I have sinned and I have done what is evil in your sight. So you are justified when you speak and you are blameless when, he judges, when you judge. Can you, hear that? Can you hear that royal decree? It's like he just condemned himself before he knew it was him. And so he tells God, you are blameless when you speak. Like you caught me dead to rights. Whatever you do is righteous and just. So here you're looking at a man in the middle of the dark night of the soul. He is broken, he is crushed, he is in the, the depths of his confession. But if, you were gonna, if we're gonna get a full picture of how David views confession, we can't just stay in Psalm 51. We have to go to another psalm. So if you'll keep, keep your place there, but also turn back to Psalm 32, okay? Psalm 32 looks back at the same experience, but it's zoomed out, okay? It's zoomed out. It's, it's probably written a couple of years later looking on over this experience, and it's got a totally different tone. Will you read with me in Psalm 32? It says, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now that's like the summary statement of the entire psalm. Um, and if I can geek out on you for a second in the Hebrew, um, that your translations might get a little wonky when you're like his transgressions, his iniquities, and his sin. And all of that say that in the Hebrew, there's three words for sin. And David lays them all three of them out in this one verse, okay? There's one word that is a chata'ah, which is to fail, or to, it's what we call sin, to miss or to fail. The second one would be avon, and that's how we translate iniquity. Iniqu avon just means like you're wandering, like you don't even mean to cross the line, but you do. You're just sort of like, you're gone. You do it, you, you choose a different path, okay? And then there's pesha, and pesha is like a willful, like a decision to disobey. Does that make sense? And so David has gone here and he has said, blessed is the man whose hata'ah, avon, pesha, whose everything is forgiven. And I think that says something about the way we like to confess sometimes. Sometimes it's like I feel like I confess, I put my cards on the table, and God looks at it and says, okay, Rob, you're forgiven. But I'm still holding on to my ace king. And it's like, man, if you really knew what crosses my mind as I lie in bed at night, if you really knew the things I said when no one's listening, if you really knew my thoughts, if you really knew what I had done, there's no way you'd love me. There's no way you'd forgive me. David is saying, blessed is the man who all of his cards are on the table. And look at Psalm 51. This is like his, his dirtiest stuff. It's out in the open. It's a psalm for goodness sake. It's for everyone to see. Blessed is the man whose everything is on the table and God wipes clean. He's like, really? Like, I don't have anything else to, to put. I don't, 
go fish, you know? <laughs> it's like, I don't have anything else to put down. And there's freedom inside that. Let's go ahead and move on. This is verse three of Psalm 32. It says, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me and my vitality was drained away like the feverish heat of summer. We can identify with that, right? Here it's either freezing cold or stinking hot. So this is a picture of what happens when we bottle up our sin, right? It eats away at us. It robs us of our life. And David's encouraging, no, get it out there so it can be gone. Okay, Now, what happens next is the linchpin of the psalm. In one verse, it covers all of Psalm 51. Okay, So this is why I'm talking about it being zoomed out. Verse 5 of Psalm 32 says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And then here it is. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. There it was. And now we see the psalm turn, and it says, Let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely a flood of great waters will not reach him. You're my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Skip with me down to verse 10. He who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness will surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. So we see from these sections that confession is not just that one dark night. It's a bigger experience than that. And we see here that David was quick to confess. David knew he was forgiven. And then because he knew he was forgiven, David could then celebrate God's salvation. Do you see that in verse 10? He who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness will surround him. Be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy. It's a turn, isn't it? And so the shape of David's confession, if you were to talk to me about confession, I would probably say, this is the shape of my confession. It's like, okay, and you hit rock bottom. For David, it looked like a ski jump. It came down and then sail. He would confess, get all my dirt out on the table, get all my dirty laundry out there. He would forgive me, and that would lead me to celebration. The most natural thing in the world for David was to be able to celebrate, because he's free. Uno, no more cards. Well, I guess Uno would technically be one more card, but you know what I'm saying. There's nothing left. The next big thing that I think we see uh, in David, aside from his response to conviction, is that David saw God's heart through the law. Now, I know that might seem obscure, but think about what was God's way of revealing himself in the Old Testament? It was through the covenants. You know, the Abrahamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, you know, um, the Mosaic Covenant, though, is where God really laid it out. He said, like, this is where I'm going to show you my character because this is who I am and this is who I need you to be because I'm setting you apart because you will mirror your maker. You will mirror your maker. And so I will put my law here so you can see who I am and see how you're to behave. And so he gave us the Mosaic Law. He gave us sacrifices, cleansing, the clean, the unclean, the righteous, the profane, the dove, the grain, the oil, the lamb, the bull, and which sacrifice was to be made and when and why, the feasts, the Sabbath, the Passover, the Day of Atonement. Where most of us see nothing but rules and regulations, David saw a relationship. It was like those forensic psychologists on like CSI or something like where you look at a crime scene, you're like, oh, this person must be like da, 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 da. David saw the Mosaic Law and he said, what kind of a God would do that? What kind of a personality would do that? And he saw it. One of the things he saw is he saw what God desires. If you look with me in uh, Psalm 51, this is verse 16 of Psalm 51. It says, you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. 
you're not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. And you're like, really? Like, where do you get that from reading the law? Because it seems to me that sacrifices are exactly what God requires uh, to temporarily cover your sins, right? But David understood something. He understood that there was nothing to motivate God to forgive him unless that motivation came within God himself. Does that make sense? Instead of seeing the law, he saw a God that was bending over backwards to create this system that would allow him to forgive them. Why would you do that? That's not just. Just is to get what you have coming, right? But he saw a God who was loving and pursuing. Totally different. He saw the personality behind it. Another thing that, God, that David saw was he understood that. And he understood God's loving kindness. Now, loving kindness is a weird word. It's a weird to translate into English. But essentially, it's the Hebrew word chesed. Okay? Now, you can't understand the Old Testament very well without understanding chesed. Because chesed is like what grace is in the New Testament. You can't understand grace in the New Testament without understanding God's loving kindness in the Old. Does that make sense? And what chesed is, is essentially God's covenantal Love that never stops, never stops pursuing. It outruns your sin. And David saw this. You want to know how David understood God's has said? Look at Psalm 23. A lot of us probably know that by heart. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. You prepare, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, and you've anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and chesed will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That last verse, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my, right? It sounds like Mary had a little lamb, like, come on, mercy, come on. Goodness, mercy, follow me all the days of my life, Right? That's not what it says. Because the word in Hebrew for follow is the same word that they use for the way Saul persecuted, hunted, tracked down David through the wilderness. Saul had an army and he was cornering David into the caves in the wilderness, right? Surely goodness and mercy will hunt you down all the days of your life. You will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That gives a totally different feel to that verse, does it not? He understood God was not just following him. He was coming after him and he would not be stopped. And because David understood God's love, he understood God's grand plan. Because he didn't just see what was happening inside him. He saw that God's said the covenant love that would not be stopped, was not only gonna, it wasn't going to stop with him. If he saw God's salvation, that salvation was also going to be extended to his people. Does that make sense? He saw a microcosm of what was happening in his life being extended to the whole of God's people. He saw that salvation was coming, and you couldn't stop it. Now, a last thing that I think David, that set David apart in his relationship with God was David's willingness to wrestle through the tough questions. You see, David's ride was anything but easy. He did have his mountain peaks, and he had it good at some points, but there were long, deep, and dark valleys in David's life. And if the Psalms teach us anything, it shows us that our deepest questions, our fears, our doubts, our failures um, are not things that we need to either suppress or ignore, right? 
through our emotions or either, and our faith or either trying to invalidate one another or to suppress one another. The Psalms show us that you can take those hand in hand before God and that it grows your relationship. It's not something to just blindly believe and to suppress everything else. Take your questions, take your doubts, take your wrestling. God's not scared of them. Take them. He'll answer them. Now, one of the last Psalms that we're going to look at deeply is Psalm 22. And this, in this terrible, painful, and beautiful Psalm, we'll find our next three points about David. In Psalm 22, David cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, by day I cry, but you don't answer. By night I cry, but I have no rest, yet you are holy. You are the one who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, and you are fathers trusted, and you, you delivered them. To you they cried out, and they were delivered, and you they trusted, and they were not disappointed. But I'm a worm and not a man. I'm a reproach of men. I'm despised by people. All those who see me sneer at me. They separate their lips. They wag their heads saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Skip ahead to verse 14. It says, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. All my strength is dried up like a broken pot and the tongue cleaves to the roof of my mouth. And yet you lay me in the dust of death. For the dogs have surrounded me, and a band of evildoers have encompassed me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me, and they divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. I remember the first time I read that psalm in its entirety, it gave me chills. Because I can imagine these two scenes being played out simultaneously. This one scene, David, king of Israel, despised, dejected, mocked, scorned, beat up, broken, abandoned, saying, my God, my God, why have you you left me? And at the same time, but yet 1,000 years later, Jesus Christ, son of David, son of God, king of Israel, mocked, scorned, dejected, broken, forsaken, crushed, And you can just hear them saying together, my God, I just saw their mouths moving at the same time. Why have you forsaken me? That's why I think he was a man after God's own heart. I think God saw the way that he responded to pain and darkness, silence. And he said, I would feel the same way. And that's the beauty of David, because David went to God inside his pain. David went to God inside his fear. David kept his faith even in God's silence. And I think that's a special response because David didn't just say, because I'm in this terrible situation, because I'm in pain or fear or doubt. He didn't say, well, God, I, just, I really just don't think you're there then, you know, because, you know, what God would do that. He didn't question God's existence. He questioned the relationship that he had with God. He questioned the purposes of God. He questioned what's going on here. He says, God, I don't really understand what you're doing here. Please help me understand. And if I can't understand, remind me of your chesed so that I can get through this. Because I have to trust that you have a good purpose, that your loving kindness is still behind me. It's still in front of me. It's still pursuing me. Much like Psalm 51, Psalm 32, Psalm 22, they have a different shape than we might think. 
It's not just the dark night of the soul. The end of all of those psalms turn, they break, they lift up, and you see God's salvation sweep through the earth. Salvation is coming. He does have dark nights, but there's a morning after, and there's days after. Now, what does all this point to? I think all of this inside David points to the fact that God wants a deeper relationship. Now, the way I've broken it down for you is like a level one and a level two relationship. A level one relationship is centered on pain and pleasure. Um, Let's take one last look at Psalm 32. Uh, This is verses eight and nine, if you'll turn there. Psalm 32, eight and nine. It says, I will instruct you and I'll teach you in the ways you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Don't be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they won't come near you. Now, what is this about? Why is the Bible all of a sudden going equestrian on us? Like, I haven't ridden a mule, like, ever. So what would I have to understand about this, right? Is this the Bible just being weird again? Um, Think about this. What motivates a mule's or a horse's obedience? Pain or pleasure. Might be the little sugar cubes you give them. But most of the time, let's say you're on a trail and mule wants to go right. Rider needs to turn left. I guarantee what the mule is not thinking is, you know, you're such a good guy. You, have, you probably actually know where we're going, don't you? Okay. You know, you know I love your, love your kids. You're such a nice guy. I trust you. Okay. I'll go. You don't even need this bit and bridle. I'll, you, just tell me what to do. No. The mule thinks, I want to go right. I'm pulling right. <laughs> and then what happens? That rider has to, like, ow, 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 ow. Ah. Okay. No pain. We're going. And then as soon as the mule forgets the pain, what happens? Ow, 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 ow. Okay, okay, back here. Right? Pain and pleasure. A level two relationship centers on fellowship. You remember Joseph in the book of Genesis? Joseph has been put in charge of Potiphar's house, okay? He's like the guy in charge of Potiphar's house. He's got all of his finances, all of his crops, all of his livestock, all of his servants, all everything. He's got it. And Potiphar's wife wants to seduce him. Every day she's saying, let's do this. And he says, no. He says, how could I do this and sin against my God? And you're like, wait, my God, don't you mean Potiphar? Right, Potiphar's my homeboy. Potiphar's the one who made me, he's been so good to me, he's put me in charge of everything. He says, God, he has made me in charge of everything except you because you're his wife. How could I do that and sin against God? Because he valued the relationship and the fellowship with God over his relationship and fellowship with Potiphar. David says the same thing in Psalm 51. If you remember us reading, he says, against you and you only have I sinned. And you're like, "Uh, no, David, you hurt a lot of people in your sin. In fact, some of them are dead now. It is not just you and you only have I sinned. But that's not what he's talking about. He's saying at the heart of it, at the top, he's broken fellowship with God. And that is more painful than any slap on the wrist, any pain or any punishment could ever be, that breaking of fellowship. So I have to confess here that this is probably the hardest part for me, level one and level two. Because if I were to look at, put a mirror in my face at my prayer life, it shows me what I care about. Um, Which is, right now, mostly, God, please keep my kids out of the doctor's office and out of the ER. Okay? Why? Because my life is crazy right now. It's insane. Let me give you two stories just from this week. I kid you not, the last seven days. Okay? Me and my wife turn our back on Amron, our youngest, our little 18-month-old, for three minutes. Three minutes. 
We come back, and he has climbed up the high chair from the thing. Notice, you know, 18, month, 18 months old, they can't get down, right? Gone from the high chair. Instead of getting down, he's like, no, nah, I'm going to go higher. Gets up on our high kitchen table, sits on the lazy Susan, it's in the middle of it, and starts playing with the wind chime and chandelier, right? And so we come back, and there's this little diapered baby sitting Indian style on the lazy Susan, and be like, oh, look what I've done. I'm like, oh, you know, two more minutes, and he would have tried to get down, and then it would have been an ER visit, right? Okay? I was like, oh my goodness. And then, not two days later, okay, I think it's like Wednesday or Thursday, um, we're in the middle of the dinner chaos. You know, dinner chaos, you're like, plate, 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 cup, cup, sippy cup, sippy cup, sippy cup. Okay, vegetable, vegetable. No, you don't like vegetables. Okay, we got kids weaving through the knees, right? And they're going, and our hot stuff coming off the stove, and you're, you're, you're in it. And Amarin is weaving through the knees, and then he gets up to the counter, and he's able to reach up, and he's like, what am I going to find? What am I going to find? Ah, got it. What did he have? A butcher knife. And so he just starts to be like, yes! And he starts running, going, ah! And I was, it was straight out of Pet cemetery or Child's Play. I was like, oh my gosh. And Tristan, my oldest son, who they call Charlie Brown at school, can only say, he's like, good grief. And he just starts running after Amran. We finally get the knife away, but we're like, <laughs> And Becca says it well. She says, just like, it just feels like we're just teetering on the edge of disaster all the time. All the time. There's no rest. So you see, a lot of my prayers are like, God, just keep us out of the emergency room. Just keep us out of the doctor's office, please. Um, so you want to get me off my spiritual game? You want to see me a monster? Get my kids sick or get my kids hurt, okay? That's the easiest way to get me off my game. And so I find a lot of my prayer is like, God, no low blows, please. Just keep my, keep my kids healthy, keep them safe, and, or else all of my relationships are going to go to pot because I just become this monster, Okay, and in the back of my head is just that level one, Rob, level one. It's just a bit and bridle. You're just praying to avoid pain. We're not talking about a relationship here. It gets me. So how do we go beyond that and actually pursue a deeper relationship with God? Well, the application is really simple and you're probably not gonna like it. Why? Because the flesh hates the things of the spirit and the spirit hates the things of the flesh, right? So, but ask yourself this question first. What is the currency of a relationship? And I'm not talking like Gary Chapman, five languages of love sort of stuff. I'm like, what is the currency of a relationship? Something that will help it, that will hurt it, that will destroy it, that will build it, that will forge it. It's communication. Because no matter how you, you slice it, you probably cannot get away from this statement. The statement is, the strength of your relationship is directly related to the quantity and the quality of the communication within it. Am I right? Your, the strength of your relationship is only determined by the strength of his communication. So, go ahead and turn that around. You want a stronger relationship with God? Here it is. Pray. Read your Bible. Okay? Pray. Talk. Lament. Confess. Sing. Praise. Prayer. Doesn't matter. Communicate. Send it out there. Get it out on the table. Confess. Get the cards out there. Get my struggles and my trials and my doubts and my fears and my failures. Get them out there. Start communicating. You want God to talk back to you? Read your Bible. Read what he wrote us. Because what he wrote us is not in some angelic script where it's only the spiritual elite for preachers and scholars and the like. He wrote it in our language so that we could get down there, we could read it, and we could receive from him. Stop going to the blog or to the podcast to see what God's gonna tell you today. Go to the word yourself, go to the source, because I guarantee you the things that God will show you in his word 
will have infinitely greater impact and value for your life than the things that he may or may not have whispered to somebody else, right? We can go straight to the source. Don't be scared of what you don't understand. Keep communicating, keep praying, keep reading, ask him, and I promise the relationship will get stronger. And you'll get a whole new set of questions that are much harder to answer than the first set, right? And that's the glorious chase. We go to God with these deep questions and he answers them. And then that opens up more questions, deeper questions, harder questions. And we go to him with those and it just keeps going and going. And that's the mystery of knowing our infinite God. So we want the heart of David to be fit into our spot in life, to be quick to confess our sins. Let us know him better through what he wrote us And let's not be afraid to wrestle, to really wrestle and ask the tough questions. Will you pray with me? Holy God, thank you for giving us David. Thank you for that he was so stinking real and gritty and raw that you chose, how weird is it, that you chose an adulterer, a murderer, a conspirator, a liar, and you've called him a man after your own heart. Help us to understand how that is. Thank you so much that you've given us a little glimpse into your heart of how he loved what you loved, hated what you hated, saw your grand plan. And I thank you, God, even more so for Jesus Christ, who was the son of David, who came not just as a a little bit after your own heart, but that he was your heart. God incarnate, come in the flesh, come to be those sacrifices that is littered all over the Old Testament. He came to be the one sacrifice once and for all so that we would not have to bear the penalty of our sin. You came, Jesus. You were that sacrifice so that all of my cards are on the table and because of what Jesus did on the cross, you can wipe away the table and say, that's been paid for. Look at my son. And now I give to you his righteousness. He earned this for you while he was here on the earth. It's yours now. And we get to put on God's righteousness like a coat. And it is nothing that we have done. I think of what you said in the Psalms in Psalm 51, where you said, create in me a clean heart. Renew in me a right spirit. Because you use that that same word, create, just like from Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, you created, you made from scratch. Actually, it's less than scratch. You made from nothing, God. Make from nothing. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Because I can't fix this. I am tainted. I am colored. Only you can create the right things inside us. So, Father, use this time. Use this time. May you create in us the heart of David. May you create in us the heart of your son, Jesus, that we may glorify you, reflect you, that we might mirror our maker. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.